the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode number 226. I'm Paul Spain, and with me is... Jack Schofield. Hey, Jack. Uh, thank you very much for, uh, for joining the, the show this episode. Very, very nice to have you on board. My pleasure. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about where you, you fit into the world of uh, tech journalism. I, I understand you've got a, a fairly uh, long, esteemed uh, history with, with The Guardian. Uh, you've, uh, you've been on BBC on numerous occasions and so on. So um, what are you up to these days? Well, I, I did 25 years as The Guardian's computer editor. Uh, I'm actually now, technically I'm retired, although my wife is yet to discover the, uh, whether there are any benefits to that. Um, so I'm continuing to write the long-running Ask Jack column at The Guardian every week, and I'm blogging at ZDNet and writing the odd feature for whoever wants an interesting feature. The actual benefit of being technically retired is that you don't have to do things you don't want to do, if you see what I mean. Yes, that's a very nice position to be in. We're going to just start with some news points. First up, mobile get-in. Uh, we understand that Google, uh, from today, is specifically going to take into account whether websites are mobile-friendly in deciding where they go in the rankings. So I presume what we, what we will see is a bunch of businesses that are going to get uh, pushed down the rankings because they don't have uh, sufficiently accessible mo- uh, websites from a, uh, from a mobile perspective. Uh, now, in other news, Microsoft have announced that they're going to open a store a little bit closer to New Zealand. In fact, this is their first uh, full retail store outside of North America, and it's going to be opening in, in Sydney. Now, this is a little bit curious to me, because Sydney's not, uh, I guess, your biggest city in the world. I would have thought maybe uh, London or uh, somewhere else in the Northern Hemisphere would uh, would be the place. Jack, any uh, any thoughts on why Microsoft might have targeted Sydney? Well, I assume it, it would be a local initiative. Uh, if Microsoft Australia was keen to launch a store, then probably they would go ahead and do that. Um, of course, it's, it's very difficult running a Microsoft store because you have hundreds of, uh, of people selling competitive products. You know, it's not like you had to go to a, you know to a Microsoft store to get a Microsoft product because they're in most stores, in fact. They're in virtually every store except an Apple store. That's true. And even the Apple stores, I think, sell Microsoft Office uh, uh, in some some form. Well, they do because it's available for the the Mac. Actually, a very important product for the Mac. Yeah. Um, But you've got to remember that uh, the Apple store launches were not without some negative kickback. There were dealers... Uh, who resented it very strongly. Companies that had been Apple dealers for decades suddenly found an Apple store opening around the corner and taking all their business. And of course, as a distributor as well as a retailer, Apple knew where stores would do well. And I believe there was a U.S. court case, but I don't think it came to anything. So in the same way, Microsoft has to be very careful about what kind of products it launches and where it opens stores and what it sells in them because 90-odd percent, probably 95% of Microsoft's business comes via third parties. It's, it's actually, there are very few people buy something from Microsoft. You might, you might buy something from Dell and Dell buys something from Microsoft. You know, so you're, you're not a direct customer. 
That's true. Even with the Microsoft Surface, they tend to be sold through uh, through other other retailers. Those retailers retailers are very very sensitive about their partner coming along and and possibly stealing some of their business, and uh, you know it means you do have to tread very carefully. Mm. Now, also on the Australian front, we understand that they're uh, considering following the lead of New Zealand, UK, and some other countries are moving to shorter domain names. So, of course, in New Zealand, we've we've moved so you can buy a, uh, a domain name such as uh, podcasts.nz rather than having to be .co.nz. A uh, similar sort of thing has happened in the UK and other markets. And now uh, the Australians are looking to get in on the act, which of course means uh, more domain registrations as people go ahead and buy the uh, the shorter versions of their name. But if it's anything like what's happened in other countries, then uh, most organisations won't be too quick to jump on board and actually start using the uh, the shorter domain names. And I think, yeah, looking here in the in the UK, uh, Jack, you were mentioning you hadn't noticed, and neither have I, a whole lot of organisations that are using the shorter names yet. But there was one in particular, you said it somehow had a short name for a, a, a long time. Yes, the, uh, the British Library had uh, bl.uk um, and I don't know how they got it, but they got it before. Uh, in fact, I asked Nominet once, which Nominet looks after the UK domain name registrations, and they said, well, we don't know how they got it either. They got it before we existed. Um, right, so it might have been something they did in the very, very early days. Yes, but I think, it, I mean, it's not a bad idea, but it's 25 years too late because, you know, how, who types in domain names now? You know, there was a time when you actually tried to remember domain names and you typed them in. But nowadays, they're either remembered by your browser or you pick them off a search engine or, you know, whatever. The fact that they're shorter doesn't really deliver any real benefits in the way that it used to. No, no, not not as not as much. Right. Well, jump jumping on now. Um, looking at new products that have been coming through, one uh, that's attracted a little bit of attention recently is Dell's new XPS thirteen Ultrabook. Now, you've spent some time with this. Um, I'm I'm keen to hear what your impressions of it are. It's an extremely nice machine. It's it's possibly the best, or one of the certainly it might be the best uh, Windows. Uh, laptop you can buy it's, it's got an amazing screen I mean the screen really is something that you've probably not seen and used before it's uh, quad quad HD and um, it's considerably more pixels than um, a retina MacBook they're calling it the infinity display aren't they yes although that's the other trick with the machine the infinity display doesn't actually refer to the resolution which is uh, 3200 by 1800 it refers to the the tiny bezels the bezels are only about five millimeters so the the trick with the with the dell xps 13 is that they fitted a 13.3 inch screen into a chassis that's roughly the size of an 11.6 inch notebook so basically if you imagine you've got uh, something practically the size of the MacBook Air. It's slightly bigger, but not very much. And then you open it up, and there's a screen the size of a Retina MacBook Pro. It's it's actually very impressive. Um, and it's also the one I've borrowed uh, for review. And it's got a, a Core i7 processor, 
2.4 gigahertz, which you know by today's standards is is really uh, really quick. Eight gigabytes of memory, two five six gigabytes of uh, SSD. So it it, it actually does uh, give you this feeling that you're in a yeah a bit of a hot rod, you know. I'm used to uh, I'm used to kind of fairly slow machines, apart from my desktop. So it's been very interesting from that point of view. Right, and and um, so Ian, I noticed that Dell are, are offering it both with that uh, uh, QHD Plus display, and you can also get it with a full HD display at the lower uh, the lower price points. Yes. Um, but boy, that QHD Plus, th- yeah, thirty two hundred by eighteen hundred. That's uh, that's impressive, and. Uh, touch screen as well on some of the models. Is, did you have a touch screen on yes. the model you've tried? Yep. Yes, I had a touch screen as well. Um, also, remembering it's super light, 1.26 kilograms. Mm. Mm. Um, I have to say that I would actually buy the uh, the 1080p model, not the Quad HD model, if I was buying one, which I'm seriously thinking about, because. Um, it's, it's such a high resolution. It's almost 6 million pixels on the screen, whereas a normal window screen is more like 1 million pixels, mm. you know, 1366 by uh, 768. Now, it's, it's great if you look at them, but you have to remember that you have to light them all up and you have to move them around. And so that consumes quite a large proportion of, of your battery life. And if it's... Uh, it maybe makes a difference if you're watching a movie, but for for 99% of the things I do, it doesn't actually make any difference. I do what most people do with a uh, most most journalists do with either a laptop. You put it on the train, you do a bit of web surfing, you word process, and that kind of thing. So you're not you're not really benefiting from from um, the, the very high number of pixels. So I would go for the uh, <laughs> I'd go for the uh, the low-resolution model, yeah. which is still actually pretty good. And, um, and I imagine that the uh, the new fifth-generation uh, core i7 processor isn't going to be a requirement for everyone, and he- hence why they've got varying uh, varying processor uh, you know, options depending on uh, what you want to spend and uh, yeah, battery life and the like. Yes, it is definitely a high-end machine, and I think one of the it's what we call a hero product. Um, it's when a company says, "Okay, we're going to do something really, really good, and we'll make a splash, and the journalists will love it, um, and we don't mind if not too many people buy it." Okay, because it will have a halo effect, and it will sell products further down the range. And one of the things that I said in I reviewed it for the Guardian, and I said, you know. Remember, with this machine, there's an elephant in the room, and it's, dude, you're getting a Dell, and that doesn't have the cachet that you would get from, you know, certain other brands, uh, not just Apple, but certainly um, ThinkPad brand. Sure. And, um, you know, even even possibly uh, HP. You know, Dell has tended to be a bit down market because now Dell is a different company. Dell's gone private. Dell is now, you know, being taken out of, uh, its shares have been bought out by Michael Dell and, um, I've forgotten, a, a partner. So it's it, it, it really is a different company and has a different set of ideas. And I think it's, it's very keen to... Um, uh, certainly to move more into the into the business market, which is ninety percent of its business, and to um, you know establish a reputation for being more at market and selective. Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly looks like a, a really top end product, and 
you know, you know, it was one of the award winners at uh, at, at CES, and yeah, I think most people that have looked at it have, have rated it very, very well. Not a you know, not a low cost machine. I was just looking at the Dell UK site to see how it was you know, priced there, and the models were between eight hundred pounds and twelve hundred and fifty. So yeah. uh, you know, that's sixteen hundred to twenty five hundred New Zealand dollars. Uh, but you know, in the business side of things, that's uh, you know. Those are reasonably typical sort of prices that people are paying for, uh, uh, you know, for the other brands that that you mentioned in terms of their business class uh, machines. So, I mean, this is good good to see, and it's great always to have uh, have competition stirring up the the market. I can understand why you would be uh, why you'd be quite interested in purchasing one of these yourself. Somebody did say to me that it was uh, relatively expensive, and I said, "Well, compared to what? It's not expensive compared to a." Lenovo Carbon X1 um, or the uh, the HP Spectra, and it's actually cheaper than uh, a MacBook Pro, which which is bigger, heavier, doesn't have a touch screen, you know. So it, it's actually quite competitive for that kind of specification. The one that's cheap is the uh, there's an Asus, um, which is uh, is it the X303? I'm trying to remember the uh, uh, the model number there as well. Yeah, it falls into a, I guess, a similar sort of base from a com- competitive aspect, doesn't it? Um, yes, it's it's one of their ZenBook range, um, and they, the 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 X three hundred three, I think, uh, comes out in the UK about eight eight hundred and fifty. That's another one I was looking at. That's with a Core i five and only four gigabytes of memory. Mm. You know the. Um, the ASUS tend to be similar specifications and a bit cheaper, on the whole. Yeah, yeah, the uh, yeah the ASUS ZenBooks UX uh, 305, and yeah, it, it's interesting to see brands like um, ASUS, and you know, I think it's probably sort of happening across the board. We're seeing that real focus on the higher end in terms of the build and the quality of machines because Asus wouldn't have been a brand in the past we would have yeah, considered to make nice high-end uh, quality equipment but actually they tend to be uh, you know, putting a huge amount of focus on those higher price points now and, and maybe in part because of what you mentioned in terms of that halo effect if they can uh, you know raise up the status of the ASUS brand then uh, then that can flow across their uh, their, their other products even if they don't sell uh, you know millions of uh, um, you know, these very very uh, stylish uh, higher end machines yes do you know where the name um, Asus comes from uh, I don't actually um, they started, um, Johnny Shi, who left ASU and founded the company in Taiwan, yes. um, had the idea, liked the idea of Pegasus, the flying horse. Oh, yes. And so he used Asus as the, the end of Pegasus um, because it got him high up on lists that were in alphabetical order. <laughs> and then when they came to launch their manufacturing uh, engine, their manufacturing plants, they called them Pegatron, which used the other half of the Pegasus name. Yes. Now, Pegatron has a long history of making, I, th- I believe they made iPads, they made the Nexus, Google Nexus 7, uh, they made MacBook, uh, so they're a very high quality manufacturing, and in fact they make the best made machine ever, which is the um, Microsoft Surface 3, Microsoft Surface Pro 3, 
I don't know if you've used one of those, but it's a vapor meg construction. And at the launch, the um, I've forgotten his name, Stephen, um, the 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 guy who uh, who launched it, put a pair of uh, skateboard wheels on the bottom of um, a, a Surface Pro and used it as a skateboard. They are really tough. My son managed to break one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, but you know. <laughs> He's a strong lad. Was that Steven Sinofsky in the original? Thank you, Steven Sinofsky, yes. Yep, yep. He, he actually, um, he was the man who, who used it as a skateboard, and I'm sure it's on uh, YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Pegatron made, makes that as well, so they are a very, very high-quality manufacturer when they want to be. Uh, of course, the problem for um, Asus is that now Pegatron operates as a separate company, it's rather hard for Asus to get things made there. <laughs> That's fascinating, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so a lot of the Taiwanese companies did the spin-off. If, um, I think Wistron was spun out of um, Acer mm-hmm. and so on. All right. Now, on to other topics. DAB. Now, this isn't a term that we hear much of in New Zealand. This is audio broadcast digitally, isn't it? And it's uh, it's the norm here, uh, or it's reasonably common here in the UK. Of course, you still have traditional broadcast. But can can you tell us what's happening in that space? Because I understand Norway have just decided to go down that uh, the the track of digital broadcasts, and uh, maybe even go so far as to kill off. FM broadcasts. This is uh, kind of fascinating. Mm. Well, if, I'm sure that you've had uh, a digital television replacing analog television. And indeed, yeah, our free view is the the digital variant, and of course, um, yeah, satellite broadcasts in New Zealand uh, for Sky TV are uh, are of course digital too. Yes, so it's a simple idea um, that uh, the radio bandwidth is limited and so if you um, digitally encrypt a number of channels, a number of radio stations into one wave, then you can probably put four or five stations where there used to be only one station. And in television, this means we have uh, three or four good television stations and 99 that you would never dream of watching because they're completely rubbish <laughs> from top to bottom. And so in the, in London, we have a similar situation that we still have three or four good radio stations, which we used to have before, but we have another 45 that are uh, bizarre or uh, completely pointless waste of space. But there you go. This is called progress. In fact, um, radio is a bit different from television in that Generally, people only listen to two or three radio stations. Um, they very rarely band hop, except when they're in the car and you know, desperate for something to listen to something different. Mm, mm. So I'm afraid we've got DAB. The, the problem in the UK, uh, the problem in the UK, is that our DAB is antiquated and awful uh, because it was designed by the BBC in the 1990s. It's almost as old as the web and. It was first launched in the UK in 1995, and that means it uses a codec that's older than MP3. In fact, it uses MP2. Wow, it takes us back, doesn't it? It does. It broadcasts MP2 at low bit rates, which is awful. Now, there's no reason why digital radio has to be bad, and the Norwegians are using a more recent variant called DAB+, which uses the AAC codec that's familiar from Apple iTunes and, you know, most 
other things more efficient to give you better quality sound for the same bit rate um, and I don't know what New Zealand is doing offhand I'm sorry but if they're using DAB plus then that's probably a reasonable thing to do. The BBC, sorry, the British government, who actually decides ultimately these things, if it had a brain, would be using DAB Plus and would have announced um, a move to DAB Plus at the first opportunity. The problem is that they spent all this vast amounts of money on television advertising, even if the BBC doesn't pay for television advertising, that's what it is. So they spent vast amounts of money indoctrinating people and, and bringing the DAB message even though it was mediocre quality and so the, the early adopters who bought sets would have sets that don't receive DAB plus and that's got everybody in a blue funk because although people are apparently perfectly happy to throw away 600 pound phones yes. after 18 months there apparently will be a national outcry and mourning and MPs will be lynched at the stake if consumers have to throw away a £50 radio when a radio, as we all know, lasts 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it does. Um, so, you know, they're on, a, they're on a bad wicket in the UK because they're bringing out, they're, they're trying to sell us radio stations that sound worse than FM. Now, yeah, anybody with a working brain knows that you have to sell a better quality product, right? Absolutely, yeah. Especially if you're going to pay, uh, you know, shell out extra money, you uh, you want something for it. Yes, and DAB radios are expensive. You can buy a perfectly reasonable FM radio for UK five pounds, ten pounds. The DAB radios have typically been £100 to £200, and they're only just getting down to the kind of £50 level. So, Right, right. It's not, it's not happy. Yeah, well, in, in New Zealand, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of interest in, uh, in DAB. I think we've had some trials, uh, Auckland and Wellington, if I remember correctly, but not a lot of interest from you know, either radio stations and broadcasters themselves uh, or from consumers. And, of course, as things track to the Internet and we have iHeartRadio and all sorts of other apps and, of course, uh, yeah, podcasts like the New Zealand Tech Podcast, then uh, yeah, there, there isn't so much interest in, uh, in, in pushing down uh, that track. So I'm, I'm not sure you know, what will happen, whether uh, FM will... Uh, will you know, continue long-term in New Zealand or not, but we haven't had a lot of huge amount of movement in the digital direction of, of late that I've come across anyway. So if yes. there is movement, then it's, uh, it's behind the scenes. Yes, it's very, very important to hang on to FM, you know, uh, for a lot of reasons. One of them is that even in Norway, only 20% of cars have DAB radios. Mm. That means 80% of cars will not get DAB if they turn off FM. Uh, the other thing is that 100% of phones, probably in Norway, have got FM radios built in, apart from um, Apple iPhones. And young people use mobile phones to listen to music. You know, they don't have, you know, old people like me, we have, we have proper radios, but young people use mobile phones. And if you cut off the FM, then you are losing the next generation of radio listeners, because they'll be listening to Spotify and Pandora and... You know, iHeart, and they'll be you know using uh, streaming. They won't be listening to radio, radio. And the other thing is that most people don't have one radio. You know, radios. 
Radios, FM radio is so cheap that it's free with a mobile phone. It's part of the radio chipset that, that delivers Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and other, you know, it, it's, it, we live in the world of, of one-chip radio. That mm. One chip in the phone does all the radios you need. That's right, right. yeah. Now, um, no, there isn't... Uh, <laughs> DAB is not in any of those phones, and DAB is currently a very expensive chipset, so nobody's going to put it in those phones. DAB uses a lot of power, so nobody's going to put it in, in mobile phones, which is short of short of battery life and so on. You know, so you're 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 taking a big risk with your audience if you shut off FM. And the other thing is, uh, one of the things from um, from America is that people depend on radio for emergency response. If there's an earthquake, if there's a tsunami, if there's a disaster, where do you find out what's gone on? Where do you find out where you need to go? All of the details for emergency rescue, they are broadcast on your radio. Yep, and in, and you know, anyone can sort of get in on it, I guess, too. And uh, in London here, of course, you've got all the, the varying sort of pirate radio stations that... Uh, uh, yes. that, that, that click in, and uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be curious what happens to them when uh, things move into a, a, a digital world. Yes, well, the sad fact of life is that if the BBC does vacate FM, the FM waves, which it wants to do, then the pirates will fill them up. There's absolutely no doubt about that because they're already, you know, trying their best. Uh, particularly in South London, where there's a big black music and grime and hip-hop rap kind of culture that doesn't generally get onto the mainstream uh, radio. And, you know, people want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to mm. hear what, you know, the BBC wants, necessarily wants them to hear. No, that's right. Yeah, that, w- that would be a real, a real pity. Now, one other topic I'm, I'm keen to uh, hear your thoughts on. In New Zealand, we've had the government's uh, ultra-fast broadband initiative. But how does the picture look here in the UK? From my research, it seems like the, the government is you know, getting in behind rolling out faster broadband both from a, a mobile perspective and a and a fixed line per perspective, I saw some figures sort of pointing at a uh, uh, an aim of of getting uh, 24 megabits or more to something like 95 percent of the population. How how's that tracking? Is that uh, is that an initiative that the public are uh, generally supportive of? Well, um, they're pushing an open door here. Uh, if you stop the man in the street and you say, who do you like faster broadband? Then, you know, they're not going to say now, are they? <laughs> That's true. That's true. So it's a relatively easy thing. Now, the the question is, what's the best way to do it? And what we've got is an incremental system. So, you know, first of all, we had dial-up and, and we had, you know, 33.6 and 52 and so on. And then we had people running, then we had broadband and ADSL and ADSL2, and then we had fiber. So the phone company will run fiber, fiber optic cables to a cabinet in your street. Okay, so that um, speeds up your local broadband. Right, and then we got VDSL, which is a video kind of modem where you get an extra modem in your house that speeds up the connection between your house or your premises, your office, and the the cabinet in the street. And that's what I've got at the moment. BT Infinity, it's called. It gives 
since I was an early adopter, I've got uh, 40 megabits a second, but apparently you can now get 80 megabits a second. And the one after that will be called GFAST, which has just been agreed as a standard. And that gives you fiber to the distribution point. So the next step is the, 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 the engineers come and they run a bit of fiber from the uh, cabinet to, say, a telephone pole or um, um, you know, another cabinet somewhere that's closer to your house. So they shorten the distance by having fiber to the distribution point, FTDP, and using GFAST. And you can get about a gigabit that way, or about 0.8 of a gigabit, seriously, seriously quick. Right, uh, but it does need building out the network, yeah, closer and closer to your your home. Uh, but you're still relying on the the old copper wire then between that distribution point in your house. That's right, because the, to bring the fibre directly to your home is an expensive operation. So, of course, you also need a, a, a new modem or a new router. In fact, um, I've currently got a VDSL modem, and I have to switch to a GFAST modem. Uh, which is then connected into my BT hub and so on. So I've now got, a, you know, if you go downstairs and you'll look in my loft, I've got piles of modems, you know, <laughs> going back to 300 board acoustic couplers, which did 30 bits a second, right, 30 characters a second, 300, 300 bits per second, and uh, 1,275 used for Prestel, and, and uh, you know, I've got my old quad modem, which cost about 500 pounds, and a whole bunch of... of uh, of uh, broadband routers, you know, for, for several generations, five or six generations. Now, if you go back to 1985, there was a brilliant man who brought out a, uh, a book called Sunrise Europe, where he argued that the future was broadband and, and fast communications. And so rather than spending 20 years incrementing it very expensively and changing your modems every three years, uh, why don't we just install broadband now? Why don't we just fit fiber optics everywhere and give everybody high speed? And okay, it could cost money. It'll cost five billion or ten billion to dig up the roads. Well, guess what? It costs a lot more to dig up the roads now than it did in 1985, and we've wasted 20, 30 years. Right. Yeah. When we would have had a world-beating high-speed internet connection. Yes. Yes. And of course, what's completely and utterly insane is that the, the British did dig up the roads and lay new pipes to every house because um, we got North Sea gas, if you recall. Right. And so once you had free gas coming out of the North Sea, um, the government essentially financed the, this. You needed new pipes to run into the houses because it was higher pressure than the old gas. Mm. So we actually spent billions of pounds installing gas for the short term because eventually the North Sea gas runs out. But we didn't spend 7.5 billion pounds installing fiber optics, which we should have done. It's absolutely crazy. And you're still not, and you're still not doing it either. So uh, you think New Zealand's onto a good thing with, uh, with rolling out fiber to, to you know, homes, businesses, schools? and I would absolutely do it. It pays off in the long run because mm. although it's very nice every two years or three years for British Telecom comes around and sells me a new, more expensive uh, service. I'm, I'm paying £125 a quarter for infinite downloads on it. This is on a business service. Mm, mm. And I have to say it's terrific as a brilliant service. My internet went down at 
on, I think it was Thursday, and they had an engineer at my house, semi-detached suburban house, by before nine o'clock the next morning. About 8.15, I think, the engineer came. But how did you cope in between with no internet? Well, I had um, I had a dongle for my um, mobile, of course. Of course. Excellent, excellent. Well, you know, <laughs> how did we live without internet? This is ridiculous. I mean, I can remember when being on the internet was unusual. So you were, you were off the internet for 23.5 hours out of every 24, and it didn't bother you. That's right. Now, if you're off for half an hour, you're going, oh, my God, you know. What's happening on Twitter? Yes. Uh, You'll find a lot of people being very rude in England about BT, about BT service. Mm. So it's very unusual (laughs) to have somebody (laughs) who says, actually, I had a really good experience. Yeah. So have they improved in recent years? Um, Yes, they have, although there's a whole lot of, again, government interference that's that's making a mess of, uh, of life. And it, it happens with the post office and uh, and uh, other national services. Um, okay, I don't want to sound too much like a Guardian writer, but uh, BT was charged with delivering a universal service, okay? Which means you deliver to a tower block in central London, but you also deliver to a farmhouse in the Orkneys. Mm, that's right. Now, clearly, if you can run a cable to a tower block in London, you can put 500 people online in very, very quickly for not very much cost. If you have to put a cable to the islands and islands, that's serious money, okay? Mm. So the way the universal system works is that you don't charge your Highland crofter £50,000 for his internet connection, and you don't charge the man in the London Tower bot the equivalent, whatever the low price would be. You deliver universal service. You're allowed to do peaks and troughs so that everybody gets a fair service. But if you allow, if you break up BT or you, you allow competition, you allow uh, you know, delivery services, then you get people who come in and cherry pick and they say, oh, I can make a big profit by supplying the London Tower Block and I don't have to supply the, the people in the urban areas, so what do I care? I don't need, you know. So, so your national supplier is left with the cost of supporting the expensive places, and it's deprived of the profits from serving the cheaper places. You see how that works? Right, right, yeah. Now, the Ofcom, who, who runs uh, the telecom systems in the, in the UK, essentially decides what the rules are, decided that BT was too powerful, and so it broke BT into two bits. There's BT, which is uh, a retail, uh, sells... Uh, phone services and phones and whatnot. And then there's this other company called OpenReach, which is actually part of BT, but you may have, on your trips around London, you may have seen OpenReach vans. Yes, yes. And so OpenReach is a wholesaler, and so it sells the same service uh, and is obliged by Ofcom to deliver the same service to any uh, internet provider or phone provider. So if you buy your uh, internet from a different company from BT, it still comes from OpenReach. OpenReach wholesales it to BT and they wholesale it to another 50 companies. So theoretically, you get the same service from each one and that levels the playing field for competition. But of course, OpenReach still has to operate on a national basis. Uh, I don't know how you handle this in New Zealand, but... uh 
Yeah, there's some similarities in New Zealand where uh, where Telecom, who Telecom New Zealand, who have recently uh, rebranded to uh, to Spark, they chose to uh, they actually voluntarily chose to split up so that they could compete for the ultra fast broadband initiative, so they could compete in that process. And so we have Chorus now, uh, who own the uh, the lines and who are providing uh, fiber to uh, around yes. around 70% of the uh, the, lo- the locations that are being delivered ultra fast broadband so yeah definitely some similarities there and you know and I think the the UK is often a place that we uh, we look at to see what you're doing right and and what you're doing maybe not so right and and learnings hopefully most of the time any any mistakes made uh, made here disappear by the by the time decisions are made in New Zealand but of course that's not it's not always quite as smooth sailing as that and uh, you know pe- people obviously love to uh, love to point the finger when things aren't uh, running as smoothly as as we would like yes well the UK has certainly made a lot of mistakes uh, with hindsight uh, so if you can learn from them, that's a very good thing to do. Yeah, we don't mind you being guinea pigs at all uh, if we can learn from those mistakes. So, uh, yes, thank you for that. Now, one uh, one last topic. Huawei uh, P8 launch was in uh, was in London uh, last week, and you know I got to spend a bit of time uh, at that event and uh, been spending some time playing with with the handset. Since now, what I'm curious to hear from you, Jack, uh, is you know when when I'm in the the tube here, wherever I am, wherever I look around, I'm seeing Samsung promotion everywhere for the Galaxy S6 and the S6 Edge. But how much how much of a brand presence does Huawei have here? Is it a brand that you've heard much of, or is the reason that they're doing yeah launch, global launch events in London? Because they're trying to build up and to uh, to make that noise and to, and to get a bit more known. Yes, they they really have no brand name here at all, as far as I can tell. Uh, it's it's certainly not a name that I come that I would come across as a consumer, as opposed to a journalist. So you know, good luck to them. I mean, it, it is actually quite an open market on uh, on mobile in the UK. Um, you know, so there, I think there's plenty of room for. Well, currently you've got people buying, um, you know, kind of no-brand Android phones that are very cheap and sometimes not very good. So there's there's plenty of room for good branding at a lower level than the Samsung branding. I mean, Samsung spends an awful lot of money on branding, which, of course, customers ultimately pay for. Well, that, that, that's right, isn't it? Someone's someone's got to pay for uh, for all that advertising. So yeah, it does end up being generally being built into the uh, built into the price in some way, shape, or or form. All right, well, uh, I'll, I'll let's jump in and, and talk through the highlights of that phone. First up, I've got to say the that uh, that the latest handset, this P8 certainly has a lot of similarities to the previous uh, high-end releases from uh, Huawei over the last couple of years. And looking back at the uh, the P6 two, two years ago, uh, that was in fact the first uh, handset or the first thing I, uh, I put up on Instagram uh, because it was a very stylish looking uh, and sleek handset. Now they've they've carried that on with the P7 and now the P8. Uh, P7, of course, didn't actually have any uh, major sort of launch in New Zealand uh, via the carrier network, but I understand the P8 is likely to get um, uh, to get picked up locally in in New Zealand and be available uh, through our local carriers. 
So uh, let's let's jump in and uh, and chat through some of the highlights. Um, I guess the first thing for me before even seeing the uh, the this new handset um, was the fact that. Uh, Huawei, we're going to the effort to have a global launch in London and we're bringing people from right around the world and including as far away as New Zealand. Uh, left me with the feeling that uh, they're starting to get pretty serious about uh, the consumer market um, because, of course, Huawei are known uh, you know, traditionally for uh, for making mobile uh, mobile networks. They built the uh, the Two Degrees network and um, uh, 4G component of the uh, the Spark network. And uh, you know, varying other bits and pieces of uh, networking gear, but uh, now they're really uh, starting to get quite uh, quite serious about the handsets, and so they're uh, they're making a big effort in terms of building phones that are uh, that are good quality and getting out there and uh, you know marketing them uh, certainly a chunk more than they did in the past. So the sort of highlights that stood out for me with the um, the P8. Now, just to give some uh, some clarity of where this fits. Uh, in terms of pricing, it's likely to launch, uh, based on the European figures that we, we saw announced in London, uh, around New Zealand $700 plus GST. So I guess we'll see that land maybe uh, $800 or so, depending on uh, what local providers choose. That's for the 16 gig model. And then they've got a 64 gig model uh, that's likely to be around the $840, $850 uh, New Zealand plus GST. So pretty competitive in terms of a high-end smartphone uh, price-wise. But of course, it all comes down to the features and the build quality and so on as to whether anyone would uh, would spend that sort of money. Now, they've gone for this sort of unibody uh, steel case. Uh, they've got the aerials that sort of surround the phone around the edges, similar to uh, to what we, we see Apple and uh, uh, Samsung and so on do now. So very nice uh, build overall. That 13 megapixel uh, camera we talked about last week. What stood out for me is that it handles very well in low light. Uh, in fact, holding it side by side with the Galaxy S6 and taking photos, it looked to be uh, to be reasonably similar. Now, of course, when you uh, you delve in and zoom into the the images, yeah, there is certainly some variation uh, across the, the the varying handsets, but uh, overall, a pretty good uh, pretty good uh, picture and uh, yeah, good good camera. Now, Huawei highlighted at their launch that uh, they've got a slimmer phone than the Galaxy S6 and it doesn't have a protruding uh, camera lens, but uh, yet it's still got a, uh, a pretty fantastic uh, camera. So um, that was one of their, one of their little, uh, little points in terms of standout. I'm not sure for me the protruding camera makes too much uh, difference, to be, uh, to be fair. Um, but yeah, I think the uh, the camera side of the phone stacks up quite well. There's some good uh, software in there uh, in terms of getting some special effects and uh, yeah, things like uh, nighttime shots where you're, where you're photographing uh, traffic. They've got some smart little uh, bits and pieces there for the way that the lights can sort of trail trail off. And I'm sure you will have seen those sorts of uh, photos. But those sorts of features are much better seen in actual uh, yeah, photos or uh, in, a, in a video review. So I won't dive uh, too much into that side of it. Now, one feature that did stand out for me as a high-end phone is there's a dual SIM option. In fact, the 64 gig uh, model uh, comes with that, and the 16 gig it's optional. So we don't know yet whether uh, whether that 
will be available in the New Zealand market. But the way they've done that, instead of having to uh, take up more space in the phone, is they're actually using the micro SD uh, tray. So you can either have micro SD or you can have that uh, second nano SIM uh, running in the, in the handset if you're uh, so inclined. Maybe you're traveling or maybe you have a, a reason for wanting to keep uh, SIMs from two different uh, providers in your phone at one time. So handy little feature. Uh, and in terms of an, another sort of unique thing, and this is actually one I've, I've found useful, is the knuckle tap feature. Uh, now you're probably wondering what this knuckle tap's all about. Now, um, basically the uh, the P8 has a way of recognizing, and I'm just doing it now, I'm just tapping my phone with my uh, knuckle. If you double tap your phone with your knuckle, it does an immediate screenshot. And uh, yeah, that's some, something I tend to do from time to time. So I've been using that one. Uh, another feature they've got that would have actually been handy uh, yesterday with my iPhone uh, is I um, I had it on the table and somehow it got picked up and moved around and uh, ended up inside uh, um, a headphone case and I could not uh, could not see it for the life of me. So I had to go into iCloud and yeah, a bit of a process and uh, make make the phone uh, ring so I could find it. Uh, but if it was the P8, then uh, there's basically a customizable feature where you can call out to your phone and ask it where it is, and it will uh, it'll respond to you. So uh, yeah, quite a uh, quite a unique fe- feature, um, but certainly something that from from time to time uh, some of us uh, get get stuck with uh, mislaying the uh, the phone. Um, so yeah, that's the uh, those sort of some of the highlights of the um, Huawei uh, P8, um, Android 5, uh, Octa Core. Um, so yeah, very very powerful processing wise, uh, three gigs of memory. And the other the other thing which is interesting is there's going to be a large variant of it. And when I say large, this isn't the usual sort of phablet or large phone uh, size we're talking about with a in the direction of a six inch screen. They're going for a massive 6.8 inch screen with the P8 Max uh, model. And uh, interestingly, it is actually, you are, you are able to hold that in your hand because it's got a very uh, slim bezel, uh, similar to the, to the P8 actually. It has a slimmer bezel than uh, just about any of the, uh, the, well, all of the other sort of major uh, smartphones on the, on the market with its 5.2 inch screen. Uh, so it, it doesn't end up being, a, being an you know, overtly oversized phone because of that slim bezel. Um, and the same thing carries through on the, the, the P8 Max. So it's not completely unworldly, uh, but I would certainly would be sort of somewhat loath to be using it one-handed for photography for fear of it uh, uh, slipping out of my hand. I'd be uh, holding it with, with two hands. So had a bit of a play with that P8 Max in London. Uh, we're, we're still waiting for more details on that, whether that will launch in the New Zealand market. Uh, but it looks like a pretty impressive uh, phablet. Um, so yeah, quite uh, quite quite pleasing to see that uh, Huawei is sort of uh, you know covering a lot of bases there, varying sizes, and there's also going to be a smaller version of the P8 as well, a uh, a, a mini edition. Uh, we've just just heard about that one. So what's missing? I guess the uh, the thing that that stood out to me is that Huawei in their Mate 7 model that they launched late last year, and that's the, that's their highest end phone series. Uh, that one comes with a fingerprint reader, and of course we're used to having a fingerprint reader in, uh, in the iPhone and the Galaxy S6, uh, but there's no fingerprint reader in the P8, so that's something that sort of knocks it 
down a notch, but you know, price-wise, uh, I guess you can't really uh, um, complain. It's still competitively priced in terms of its uh, its feature set. Uh, in terms of software-wise, although we're still uh, you know some weeks out before the um, global uh, broad availability, um, the software seems uh, pretty solid and, and reliable from the features that I've tested out. Um, the only gotcha for me was there appears to be some antivirus uh, software on there. Uh, now that may not be there in the uh, in the final product, but this antivirus software uh, sort of pops up and alerts you to its presence and is encouraging you to buy a sort of a, a full version of it. So um, yeah, it's not so nice when we get all this uh, um, yeah extra software loaded onto our phones that we haven't necessarily chosen. Uh, that said, uh, you know Samsung dump a bit of software onto their phones as well. Uh, as do others so it's not too unusual and of course you can uninstall it um, but overall I was uh, I was pretty impressed with uh, what Huawei are doing with the, with the P8 and I'm quite interested to see uh, what they're going to have next uh, coming up with their um, um, Mate 8 I would presume the next version of, of that top end uh, uh, product but for now this is very much their flagship their, uh, their top phone in the market with uh, with the P8, and we're looking forward to uh, that being being launched in New Zealand. Um, I've been using this one for the last few days as, as my uh, my primary phone, and yeah, there's not really a whole lot to complain about. I got to say, it uh, you know it stacks up well against uh, the other products uh, from from the top players. Uh, it's feeling the feel in your hand is is pretty good. Maybe a little bit sharp around the. Um, uh, front and 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 uh, and rear rear edges, but um, you know, realistically, it's um, it's it's a very good overall overall handset. For me, one of the key things is having a great camera, and it certainly you know stands out in those regards. When it, when you know when I've had uh, in my pocket the P8 and the iPhone uh, 6, I've invariably been jumping to uh, the P8 and uh, and using its camera, partly because it's new, uh, but partly because the results on it are actually uh, are really good. So that's it on the uh, on the P8. All right, well, uh, Jack, thank you very much for uh, for joining me on the on the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Now, where's the best place for uh, for people to track you on down online? Understand you're uh, you're on Twitter. I am on Twitter uh, far too much of the time. Um, I'm. On the Guardian website, I'm on ZDNet's website because I, I blog there intermittently. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm everywhere, actually. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm not everywhere. I'm not on um, Instagram or WhatsApp, but I'm, you know. Yeah. I, I have to give my son some space. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, th- thank you again for uh, for joining us, and it's been uh, been very insightful having some of your opinions and, and getting a few thoughts from an English perspective uh, on the podcast. Uh, I certainly encourage people to uh, to look you up online for uh, for a little bit more of your uh, your commentary. Okay, thanks very much for having me. Okay, fun. thank you. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology proactive and strategic IT.